Morning, brothers and sisters, and all those who seek the truth. Can you hear me out there? All right. Indeed, we are blessed these two days with the weather, and certainly it brings us a joy to sing unto thee, not only of these things of this world, but for the manna that he has given us. And this morning, I would like to give you these few minutes that we have here before we go to class, uh, some thoughts on this seventh chapter of Romans. In that, Paul says, With the mind I serve my, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now Paul says in verse 1, For I am speaking to those who know the law, and the law is master over a man as long as he lives. And in verse 12, the law is holy, let's keep this in mind, and the commandment is holy and just and good. We have seen the law performed to perfection its wonderful work of educating Israel in the things of God. We have watched literal and symbolic ordinances alike made plain to them that the goal of their national existence was absolute, holiness to the Lord. That is, as his covenant people, they were to regard themselves as his representatives on earth. Letting their light so shine before men or other nations that these would see their good works and glorify the Lord in heaven. The simple fact was that the law was never designed to relegate man to eternal life, but the law went to the extent of omitting it. Its weaknesses thus became its strength when it frankly evolved in symbolism plain for all to understand who would that it could not take men beyond the confines of this earthly life and moreover was never designed to do so. Thus the law confessed that while it condemned men it could not save them. This ritual covering of sin affected at best only a ritual approach to God. Only a real atonement, atonement could affect a real approach. Certainly it brought to the awareness of them under the law that is taught thoroughness that the wages of sin is death. The law demonstrated beyond doubt as the differences of spiritual and fleshly in that God said to live a man had to do. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and I am the Lord. For this reason and realization by some, it brought terror by example of disobedience to the people of apathy and backsliding. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, Obedience had to be absolute, not one point, 
overlooked. The people promised all and will we do. Paul said to the Hebrews, he said, for who were they that heard and yet provoked the bitter anger? Did not, in fact, all do so who went out of Egypt under Moses? Moreover, with whom did become disgusted for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? But to who did he swear that they should not enter into his rest except to those who acted disobediently? So we see that they could not enter in because of lack of faith. And he goes on to say, Therefore, since a promise is left of entering into his rest, let us fear that sometimes some one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter into it, and those to whom the good news was first declared did not enter in because of disobedience, he again marks off a certain day by saying, after so long a time in David's psalm, today, just as it has been said above, today, if you people listen to his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had led them into a place of rest, God would not afterward have spoken of another say or another day. So there remains a Sabbath resting for the people of God. For the man that has entered into God's rest has also himself rested from his own work. Just as God did from his own, let us therefore do our utmost to enter into that rest. For fear anyone should fall in the pattern of disobedience. Now these were the words of Paul speaking to the Hebrews. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ are brought out of that land of strangers, called out, God calls those out, in reference to children of gross darkness, into an enlightened hope of restitution of all things, divinely directed, which is to say the least, in the imagination of man, our directions man is traveling. And as we travel this narrow road in hope, we find ourselves in a tug of war, as Paul describes it, within our members. In the fifth verse, you'll note, the works of the flesh by the motions of sin are, another rendering, which I like, is the cravings of his members. And yet, if he would have yielded to his own impulse, it would impel him to violation of the law, or of the divine law. Now, these things were in the makings of his members, from his natural environmental growth and association of the law and birth to combat with and knowingly enlighten with reflection of oneself of these weaknesses. And as it is with us, we would like to eliminate 
We eliminate it with a fig leaf covering, in which times we do. But we know it is just a temporary covering as it was in the early days, and we still continue to do it as our foreparents. It doesn't solve the problem. It's just temporary. There is that physical principle that dwells within us, namely known as cardinal, or translated from the original meaning, flesh. And when brought forth in an evil action, our sin, which therefore produces fruit, fit only for the Dunhill, which we know is outside the walls of Jerusalem. And as the preacher says, the brother brought out there Saturday night in his lecture, the vanity of the labor under the sun, all is vanity. Life is nothing but a passing shadow. So then Paul says this, in that chapter he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. There are two principles involved here. Principle of evil and principle of good. And this abides in us as long as we breathe that free spirit and must learn to cope with it head on in an honest or better yet express the spiritual approach of one's individual backyard maintenance. It is your responsibility. The thinking of the flesh, and Paul illustrates this to us, that the flesh is the thinking substance. That is, the brain, or in other terms, and this is a good term, the fleshly tablet of the heart. I'm sure some of you have heard that. The fleshly tablet of the heart. Then one ponders this as we study the law and all those divine ordinances by God. How could we put that tablet in the ark? Just how could we put that, be worthy to put it in there as we pray and enter into this living temple of God? How could we put that fleshly tablet in the ark? This is what Paul is trying to relate relate to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. The sentiments of man without the guidance of divine law is one who is groping about in darkness, trying to find their way out without light. And in the physical sense, we know this, that it's difficult. The truth of this is illustrated and brought to life by the excesses in which mankind has plunged in the name of religion, such as Mohammedism, Romanism, Paganism, and Protestantism, and so on and so forth. They are the results of their sentimental impulses, sentimental, predicated upon ignorance and misconceptions of the truth. Hence, they are either altogether false are like the shrewd serpent. It is a clumsy mixture of truth and error. And this is our warning, and he give it to the brethren in, we have it today. The law of sin and death is hereditary, derived from the first man, Adam. But the law of the mind is intellectual and in a moral pursuit 
with a directing capability going one way or the other. The law of sin pervades every particle of the flesh and serves only the law of sin and death. The intellect of man, fleshly speaking, is best illustrated by the darkness of Egypt, brought out strongly today by the modern thinking, so as it be in the copying of the philosophies of the bygone era of Plato and the logics of Aristotle. Now the scriptures say, the commandment of God is a lamp, and his law is light. So the prophets say, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And as the apostle brings out, that the sure word of prophecy is light that shineth in a dark place. Isaiah says that the word is made up of God's law and testimony, and that those who do not speak according to it have no light in them. This is the reason man has no light in him, because he is intensely ignorant of the law of God. Light does not emanate from within. For sin, blood, and flesh give out none. If we take a moment and reflect on this in a physical sense as a mirror, the light is not in the mirror, but its surface is constituted that when light falls upon it, it can throw it back or reflect it according to the law of light. That the images of the of objects are seen on the surface. Then the light proceeding from the object is last reflected to the eye. And neither is light inborn in the heart. It is called the fleshly tablet of the heart. In it it in some it is polished, but in others it is tarnished. It was polished in the beginning when God formed man after his likeness. But sin has punished us that there are but few who reflect his similitude. It is the conceit of the flesh that man thinks he is born with light within. And God only is the source of light whose truth enlightens the eye. But what is truth? What is it? Consider this. It is the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the polished, incorruptible, fleshly mirror which reflects the image of God. Now, insofar as those in Christ and image at present but obscurely impressed upon the fleshly tablets of our hearts because we know only in part proceeding by the eye of faith until hope shall disappear in the possession of that glorious pride. God then is the source of life. The gospel of the kingdom in the name of Jesus is the life 
and Christ is the medium through which it shines. Hence, he is styled, as the brother brought out in his lecture yesterday, the S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, also the true light which enlightens every man that cometh into the world, alike to the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every man is not enlightened by his glorious knowledge. For to some it is hid. The tablets of their hearts are so corroded and entrusted with the cares of the world and its benevolences, hence light will not shine in a black surface. Paul says again, he says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of the world has blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine into them. He goes on to say, He darkens the tablets of their hearts by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and thus prevents them from opening their ears to hear the words of eternal life. When Christ appeared in Israel, he shined in darkness. This nation was darkened by its assimilation of other nations in human tradition. That they did not perceive the light when it shined among them. And John records, first chapter, the darkness comprehendeth not. He came unto his own, and he his own received him not. And thinking on this as to what happened to Israel, think of the world at large, where many came from beliefs of many gods and superstitions and of such that there was of intense darkness. And as a man thinketh, so is he that the results of man's self-righteousness makes him a stranger in the sight of God. The intellect and the sentiments of the apostle's brain constituting the fleshly tablet of his heart had been inscribed by the spirit of the living God in the way that all believers are not the subject of. He was inspired and received much of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God by divine revelation. Others received by written or spoken word, such as Paul says, earthen vessels like himself in whom the treasure was deposited. But what matters most is not how, but what is written on, our, on the heart. When in possession of this, it forms the mind or mode of thinking, our feeling which in wit to serve the law of God. He brings out in the seventh the crux of this chapter by the divine revelation. The apostle was able to think and feel in harmony with the thoughts of God. 
thereby checking his natural tendencies. For no spiritual perfection of thought and feeling could eliminate the particles of his flesh. The all-pervading principle of its corruption. While therefore with his mind he served the law of God, his flesh obeyed the law of sin. The scriptures vividly describe the mode of thinking that should be in a true believer of the divine law and testimony, such as, and quoted, a clean heart and a right spirit, a new, crea new creature, renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him, and the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. This demonstrates the moral excellence required of oneself. He denies himself of all ungodliness, worldly lust, and walks soberly and righteously and godly in the world. Nevertheless, the law of sin, through the weakness of the flesh, fails not to remind himself of imperfection. And that should be prevalent within our mind. And Paul brings this into a conclusion. Read it from the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, verses 7 to 10. Least I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. The measure of Satan buffed me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Will I rather glory in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me? Therefore, I may take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. 